Welcome to Weight Loss and Wellness for Real, the podcast where people like you get the practical solutions and support you need to permanently lose the physical and mental weight so you can feel better and live the life you want in the body and mind you want. If you're looking to overcome your stress eating, overeating, binging behaviors, and move to a place of freedom with food and your body, you're in the right place. Just a reminder that this podcast represents my own opinions. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your doctor or healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. Hello, friends, and welcome. I'm glad you're here. This is episode 59 of the podcast, Weight Loss and Wellness for Real. And today we are talking all things anxiety. Um, This is actually the first part in a three or four part series I am doing. Not sure how long it's going to take me, so that's why I'm not quite sure on three or four, but um, this is the beginning of it. And I'm really going to focus these next three or four episodes all on anxiety, how it affects our health, our well-being, and how uh, we can start to heal from anxiety. Uh, It seems to be just chronic and um, I'm seeing it more and more and more. And I have suffered with anxiety all my life. And if you have, you know how debilitating it can be. And so I'm hoping in really getting in depth with this topic, that it can be really helpful. Um, Whether you're here to try to lose weight, whether you're here to try to optimize your health, um, this is all gonna be about how we can work. And you know, even if you don't deal with chronic anxiety, like if you become stressed, if you deal with a lot of stress, sometimes we interchange those words a little bit, but uh, these episodes will, will be helpful. For you. Before we get into it, just a reminder you can head to my website at heatherheinen.com. Heinen is spelled H E Y N E N. And once you're there, I'd ask that you sign up for my monthly newsletter. It's free. It's um, on all things well being. I've got some good feedback from uh, people who have subscribed to it. And I really just try to make it very concrete, very short and sweet, um, but also some things I may be thinking on or musing on, often recipes I will put in there. I think in this month's um, one, there's a recipe that I use for a pre-workout uh, that I think is fantastic. And what else? Uh, oh, um, often I will put um, discount codes there for uh, companies that I'm working as an ambassador for or who I'm partnering with. Um, And also I have a new one that I'm going to be doing an ambassadorship for, which I'm really excited about because I love their products. So as soon as that is finalized, I'll be letting you into the discount code for that one. Um, Okay. You can also, you guys know, you can get tons of details on if you want to work with me one-on-one, how that works. Um, you can, from that website, fill out a form to request to work with me if you are interested. And all right, yeah, we're just gonna we're gonna move on into anxiety. So, like I was saying, I really want to do um, sort of multiple episodes on anxiety. So this is gonna last for a few weeks. I I really am wanting to do this. 
um, because I have seen to me as a mental health therapist, it's a little shocking uh, in the last year and a half. And um, as I'm recording this, uh, I, this is um, uh, October of 2021. And so, you know, of course, I am linking a lot of this to the pandemic that started a year and a half ago. Um, although I had seen over the years, anxiety levels tended to be rising and rising and rising. And we did have statistics and data on that, that that is true, at least within our country, the United States. Um, but when that pandemic hit over this last year and a half, uh, I have seen it go to, I, I just, I don't even have words. I, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but it's pretty dramatic. Um, this absolute increase in heightened anxiety in adults, as well as in uh, teenagers and kids uh, and my clients coming to me, I've experienced it myself uh, in my social groups, friends. Um, and if you look at the statistics right now, uh, it tells us that this is true. This is going on in the entire world in general. Again, um, in the last year and a half, mostly due to the pandemic, you know, anxiety disorders are the most common type of psychiatric disorder. So statistics point to over, it's like over 30% of people are going to suffer from anxiety disorder in their lifetime. I'm guessing um, because of what we are kind of living through in our world right now, that statistic will become higher as we gain more more uh, numbers over the next five years. Um, and that statistic of that 30% of people was a statistic from five years ago. So again, um, I would I would hazard the guess that even currently that statistic is much higher. Many of us have dealt with anxiety for many, many years. And as our culture is changing, anxiety does seem to be increasing. But I do believe we are at a time in this world right now um, that it really is peaking. We, we know that people who suffer with anxiety disorders experience uh, things like poor quality of life, um, there's often educational and or occupational impairment, right? So difficulties within school um, or difficulties at their job. Uh, um, they, there is a higher suicide rate for people who deal with anxiety disorders. Um, and, you know, our society really does suffer through lost work productivity, uh, disability, um, definitely increased healthcare utilization, and all of that I took from an article of the National Center for Biotechnology Information, which is part of the National Institute of Health. So anyway, I, I just really want to focus on this topic for a few weeks with the hope that some of you listening and dealing with anxiety can start to understand it better. Because remember, understanding and clarity of things, that knowledge does help to take the temperature down on our emotions. Um, I also hope you will learn ways to create a more a more relaxed relationship with anxiety. And yes, this is very possible. And also begin to heal and find a life that is filled more abundantly with, with joy and meaning and love and richness and beauty and deepness that really does still exist in our world. Just real quick, if you have not signed up for my free monthly newsletter at my website, heatherheinen.com, I would really encourage you to go do it now before November 19th. Usually the 
um, newsletter comes out at the end of every month, but this month it is getting released, I believe on the 18th or 19th. And in this month's newsletter, it is all practical strategies on how to maintain your weight throughout the holidays while eating the foods you love, drinking the drinks you love to drink. Um, So it's one of those things that just has a really long list of different types of things that you can do to be able to maintain your weight while still enjoying foods you love. So it's something you could print out and read through daily. Um, A couple, you know, just trying a couple things off the long list. So I'd really encourage you to go over and sign up for that now before it is released on the morning of November 19th. I hope you are finding something useful from these episodes and this podcast. And if so, please share it with someone else in your life you feel it could benefit. This podcast is also now monetized. So if you really feel you are getting a lot from it and want to help keep it going, please go to the episode show notes. You can just scroll down from wherever you're listening. You'll see a description of the episode and then you will see it says support this podcast and then there's a link you can click on. You can click on that link and that's where you can support the podcast. Even the smallest donation like 99 cents helps to keep me producing the podcast. And to those of you who have donated, I really, really appreciate the support. I really do appreciate all of you listening and sharing the space with me. Again, just very thankful for all of you. I'm going to first go into some information about our brains and cognitive bias and how they are influencing more than what we are actually conscious of as we are interpreting the world. So it's going to be a brief overview. So if you don't get excited about this sort of thing, stay with me anyway. I I just, I think it's important as we learn to heal anxiety that you have a more clear understanding of what the brain is actually doing to create it through our thinking patterns so that as you become more aware, as you take on more knowledge of what's kind of going on behind the scenes, um, again, remember that awareness and understanding is one of the first things we need in order for changes to take place. So so hang on for just a moment as I take us through some of this, but I promise I'm going to get to Um, more practical and doable solutions later in this episode. So one of the ways we create anxiety for ourselves is due to the way the brain is designed. The the brain has evolved, been designed by many different mechanisms um, for extracting like the most relevant information that comes out of our environment. It, It does this so that our senses are not overloaded. So, so, you know, it's the brain is constantly scanning our environment, but it's really, whether you know it or not, picking or choosing certain things to focus on. And it's completely disregarding other things. And, and that is so that we don't become overloaded. We won't be able to function then. So cognitive biases are there to speed up productivity of the brain. By the way, cognitive biases are cognitive, you know, cognition thinking. Um, biases mean, you know, we are sort of uh, not seeing the whole picture, right? We're kind of biased. So cognitive bias is a term that we use uh, in psychology and uh, mental health therapy to describe ways that our brain thinks, patterns of thinking. I'm going to get into some of those. So hang on here. Um 
So cognitive biases are there to speed up productivity of the brain, but but there is this trade-off, right? So the ability for the brain to be fast and interpret our world, we trade off in accuracy. So so it's not always, well, often <laughs> it is not accurate. So cognitive bias are defined as a systemic pattern of deviation from norm or rationality and judgment. So we create our own subjective reality from our perceptions of the input. So we are constantly interpreting our world, but it's very subjective. It is often not objective, right? We, we are often, we have these cognitive bias that sort of we are filtering through, we are seeing our reality through these biases. So, and this is everyone, by the way, everyone's brain does this, whether you think yours does or not. So, uh, it, the, this construct of reality, this this way that we see reality, and not the objective reality, this the way that we are seeing real uh, reality may well does dictate our behavior in the world. So so in other words, something in the world or our environment occurs. Right, we have thoughts about that, and in reality, those thoughts are often steeped in. Uh, judgment patterns, meaning these thoughts are not necessarily true. So there's a cue in our environment. We have thoughts about it, but often these thoughts, well, these thoughts are not necessarily true. That's how I'm going to put it. And then we behave from those thoughts because remember we have the thoughts, then we have feelings, then we, our behaviors is motored. We, our behavior is motivated. So we behave in ways that are not in alignment with reality quite often. And, and so this is a problem and often leads to relationship issues, feelings and behaviors related to low self-worth, issues in energy and productivity. So, you know, the cognitive bias, although it helps our brain move quickly and, and we can make these judgments very quickly, often um, our judgments are completely inaccurate and then we are behaving out of those inaccurate judgments and then that is producing tension within relationships or creates these feelings and behaviors that are related to low self-worth or we have issues um, in energy levels or productivity uh, within our lives. Um, so here, here are some examples. Um, things like, you know, only paying attention to news stories that confirm our opinions we already hold or, um, you know, blaming outside factors when things don't go our way. So putting the blame somewhere else, not taking ownership, uh, maybe assuming everyone else shares your opinions or beliefs, right? We just kind of walk through the world thinking everybody else thinks, feels like we do, uh, Learning a tiny bit about a topic and then assuming we know all there is to know about it. Often, well, another one can be, um, and I can't think of the name of this one, but where we attribute other people's success to luck, but but we take personal credit for our own accomplishments. So like he does something great and I'm like, oh, he was super lucky. And then I do something great and I'm like, well, that was my hard work, right? Uh, we, we like to believe we are making judgments and decisions about the world around us that are very logical, objective, and that we are capable of taking in and sort of evaluating all the information that is available to us. But really, unfortunately, these cognitive biases that run in the background of our brains trip us up and, and lead to poorer decisions and bad judgments. And if, if you don't know about cognitive biases, right, 
it's like you are just operating on autopilot. You're just moving through the world like this. But the, the beauty of this is once you learn about cognitive bias and what your brain is doing behind your back, you can start to intervene. And um, that's where this becomes really helpful to lessen anxious symptoms. So here are some types of cognitive bias that distort our thinking. There are many, many, many. I'm just going to touch on a couple to give you some examples of cognitive bias that, that distort our thinking. So there's one called... Um, the actor observer bias, and this is the tendency to, this is what I was talking about, attribute your actions to external causes while attributing other people's behaviors to internal causes. So for example, um, you attribute, attribute your high cholesterol level to genetics while you consider others to have high level of cholesterol due to poor diet and lack of exercise, right? Um, the attentional bias, this is a big one. It's the tendency to pay attention to some things while simultaneously ignoring others. So for example, when, when making a decision um, on, like, on, on which car to buy, you, you pay attention to the look and feel of the exterior and interior, but ignore the safety record and gas mileage. So that's attentional bias, right? Okay, this is a biggie. Availability heuristic. I know these words are kind of ridiculous, but anyway, clinically it's what it's called. Availability heuristic. And this is placing greater value on information that comes to your mind quickly. So you give greater credence to this information and tend to overestimate the probability and likelihood of similar things happening in the future. So the example here would be the habit thought that comes up at how you failed at keeping weight off in the past, right? So you you um, have this habit thought that pops up constantly about how you failed at keeping your weight off in the past. And now you're on this new diet and now you just know it's not going to work, right? Because that that thought is so habitual and patterned, it comes up first. And so you p place a lot of information on the on that thought that's coming up quickly. And um, so you tend to believe it. Another huge one is confirmation bias. You've probably heard of this one. This is favoring information that conforms to your existing beliefs and discounting evidence that does not conform. Um, there's, there's many other ones, uh, functional fixedness, uh, false consensus effect. Um, by the way, that's the one where the tendency to overestimate how much other people agree with you. I just think that's kind of funny. Uh, here's a biggie, the halo effect. So this is your overall impression of a person influences how you feel and think about their character. So this one especially applies to physical attractiveness, um, influencing how you rate that other person's qualities, right? And and I just listened to a great podcast episode on this one if you're interested and want more in-depth info um, on the halo effect. And that was on Hidden Brain podcast. And, and I think the actual title of the episode was The Halo Effect. Um, it was fascinating. The, the halo effect comes in, in, in the, the common example of those of us who get into a new relationship with someone and then, you know, we're flooded with those initial amazing feelings that that new love or new encounters bring. And so we get this, this wonderful impression of the person because of the sensations, the chemical cocktails the, due to the feelings flowing through our body. But, but as a little time goes by, their, their true nature kind of comes out, you know, and throws up red flag after red flag, but, but we continue to stay in the relationship. And this gets into how many people stay in 
verbal, emotional, physically abusive relationships. When, you know, if you're on the outside watching that, the outside world, you know, we can't understand why in the world would they stay in that environment? But this is why it really is the halo effect, the cognitive bias of your brain. It is how your brain is working in the background. Uh, Misinformation effect. This is a tendency for post-event information to interfere with the memory of the original event. It's easy to have your memory influenced by what you hear about the event from others. So knowledge of this effect, um, that gets into the mistrust of eyewitness information. You've probably heard some of those stories where, um, you know, eyewitnesses, they, they think they see things a certain way. And then often we are not remembering things exactly how they, they happened. Okay. There, there's, um, there's many, many more, uh, and at times multiple biases, you know, play a role in influencing our decisions and thinking. So for example, you might misremember an event, you know, that's the misinformation effect, and then assume that everyone else shares that same memory of what happened. So that's the false consensus effect. Um, But also remember that cognitive biases are not necessarily all bad. Many of the biases, they really do serve this adaptive purpose. They they allow us to reach decisions quickly. And and this can be vital if we are facing a dangerous or threatening situation. Um, The example I've seen used often is, you know, if you're walking down a dark alley and spot a dark shadow that seems to be following you, a cognitive bias might lead you to assume that it's a mugger and that you need to exit the alley as quickly as possible. You need to run. The dark shadow may have simply been caused by a flag waving in the breeze, but relying on mental shortcuts can often get you out of the way of danger in situations where decisions really need to be made quickly. And I'm just making that point that it's not like we want to get rid of all cognitive bias. Um, they, they do have an adaptive use, but we want to be aware of these things when we make the decision or we desire to lessen, or we desire to lessen anxiety and stress in our lives. So All of that is to help you understand that how we interpret interactions with others, how we interpret our world, our situations that can bring up anxiety for us are often due to these cognitive bias that are playing in the background of our our mind. Because as we misinterpret these things and form beliefs from inaccurate judgments, we then have thoughts that create feelings of anxiousness and bring on those sensations into our body that can even move into full-blown panic attacks for many of us. And if you've never experienced one, oh my gosh, anyone who has can tell you they are truly the most, they are such a scary, miserable, awful thing to experience. Many people end up in the ER thinking they are having a heart attack. That's how physically painful and uncomfortable that sensations are that come along with a panic attack. Okay, and then and then we end up behaving in our world in ways to try to mitigate or manage the anxiety. And and so for many of us that turns into trying to control everything because when we feel like we're in control, the anxiety abates for a moment. This often leads to destruction of relationships. Um you know, often what I will hear with couples, um, and I've, I, I've experienced this myself, but 
it's where the other person has such heightened anxiety. The other person in the relationship or children who have a parent like this, you constantly feel like you are walking on eggshells, right? Um, it creates this sense within the household or the relationship that you can't do anything right. And so you're kind of tiptoeing around walking on eggshells because you never know when their anxiety is going to be heightened, how they're going to respond. Um, so, you know, it, it can really, really be destructive in relationships. It can also lead to that need to be perfect. And because you can never get there, because it is impossible for any of us as humans to be perfect, just all my perfectionists out there, if you're listening, sorry to burst your bubble. It is impossible. But yet there's this need to be perfect. And because you can never get there, you are always feeling awful and unworthy, which leads to so many other issues like overeating or using alcohol or over shopping or any of the other maladaptive behaviors we use to try to um, soothe some of those feelings in, a, in the moment. So here's an example of cognitive bias that actually increases anxiety because I'm going to I'm going to talk about two that are particularly um particularly driven drive that anxiety response. So uh, this one is going to be attentional bias as our first example. This is this one is a particular challenge to those of us with um, anxiety disorders or even anxiety symptoms because you you fix more of your attention on stimuli that seem threatening and you ignore information that might actually calm your fears. So classic example um, that always comes to mind when I think of this is flying. So someone who becomes extremely anxious about flying, their attention and therefore all their thoughts are about the plane crashing, how they will have no control to stop it, and so they can't get on the plane. Or there's so much tension when they're trying to get on a plane. And then when offered the real and true statistic that they are much more likely to die while driving in a car than flying in a plane, they just this is ignored or brushed aside. So the attention or fixation on the plane crash wins out over and above the logical true reality. Um, and, and then the other fascinating part is many of these people have zero anxiety driving, right? Okay. So another example of this type of cognitive bias, when speaking to a group, um, a socially anxious person's brain is going to fixate more and attend more to threatening facial expressions. So anger and disgust expressions rather than neutral expressions. Also, if they see a negative facial expression, they will automatically assume that person making that expression does not like them or, or what they are saying. Instead of assuming that person's facial expression is due to the conversation they are having with someone else or maybe what they just happen to be thinking about in their head, right? So it, it all goes on to the attention, um, the brain's cognitive bias the attention goes to most of the negative that then increases anxiety or stress within this person. So, so this really becomes that habit of thought, that pattern of thought. The attentional cognitive bias is now the patterned 
or habit of thought. And because it is happening more and more often and not interrupted or, you know, or shifted because, you know, maybe you weren't aware this was happening. And so you're not trying to interrupt the pattern or shift the pattern. It becomes more and more deeply ingrained and even more pronounced. So now even more situations get interpreted this way. And now it appears to this person that everyone hates them. And when this belief is in place, it can be almost impossible for this person to function in a healthy relationship or find joy or purpose. And often then depression also sets in. And now the world is just a very threatening place. The next cognitive bias I'm going to talk about is the other one that is present most often in anxiety disorders, and that is the interpretation bias. And this is the tendency to interpret ambiguous or mildly negative cues in a negative or catastrophic manner. And that's the word that we use a lot, like um, catastrophic thinking, the word we use a lot in therapy, that catastrophic thinking. So here's here's an overview of a study I found that, that describes how this goes down. In, in this study, researchers compared this bias, this type of bias, and individuals with high and low interview anxiety. So participants read narrative text describing interviews that included critical ambiguous sentences on which participants had to decide on the final word. Stay with me here. I'm going to give you a clear-cut example. The final word of the sentence they decided on would either resolve the ambiguity in a positive or negative manner. So for example, after reading the incomplete sentence they were given, um, you know, you tell, okay, so this is a sentence they're given. You tell the interview your idea and she seems to be blank and they could fill it in with interested or they could fill it in with bored. They could choose. So you can probably guess the results. Those with high interview anxiety always, always chose the bored word. And those with low interview anxiety always, always chose interested, right? It's really fascinating if you think about it. We do have a lot of strong studies that suggest this interpretation bias is a really, really um, robust phenomenon associated with anxiety in both children and in adults. Also, we have some studies showing that this negative uh, interpretation habit of thought, if you will, gets into intrusive thoughts as well. So intrusive thoughts get interpreted as negative not just as thoughts, not just as, oh, there's an intrusive thought. When the intrusive thought comes in, it is immediately interpreted as negative. And and the person assigns a meaning to them, right? So intrusive thoughts, by the way, they do not have meaning. Intrusive thoughts are just thoughts. They are just thoughts being populated by the brain for all kinds of different reasons, by the way, in fact, this is true for all thoughts, right? We, we assign meaning to them often, um, but often uh, they have no meaning. They're just thoughts that are coming up. But if we put meaning onto intrusive thoughts, which are often present in the anxious mind or in conditions like PTSD and OCD, um, when we put meaning to them, uh, that can really be there can be such negative outcomes from that because intrusive thoughts are just intrusive thoughts. Like I said, they're just 
for whatever reasons, um, you know, often they can be from trauma response and that kind of thing. They're just thoughts that the brain is populating, that the brain is throwing up. So if we can just label them as, oh, there's an intrusive thought and move on and not give them meaning, we have a whole different way of behaving and seeing our world, right? Um, Anyway, this interpretation bias can really perpetuate symptoms of uh, PTSD, OCD, anxiety disorders, and simply just um, anxious symptoms and stress. So given the important role cognitive biases play in anxiety disorders or anxiety symptoms or feeling stressed, several treatments have been developed to target these things. So for example, mindfulness-based and attention or metacognitive training approaches teach patients to better control their attention through specific exercise. Uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, really target distorted interpretations using cognitive restructuring and behavioral behavioral experiments or strategies that people implement throughout their lives. So anxious individuals um, who respond to successful treatments do show a significant reduction in attention and interpretation and interpretation bias. Um, So you know, a lot of the treatment that I just talked about rely on verbal dialogue um, and real explicit instruction to change cognition. Uh, they really are there to help um, kind of facilitate this process of helping the individual get some strategic control over attention and interpretation of their thinking. Okay, that's a lot, and I know, and it was very clinical. I am going to move into um, some real practical things here for you. And I just really wanted to establish for you at least a partial idea of why understanding and being aware of our brain's cognitive distortions and specifically the attentional bias and the interpretation bias how that contributes to anxiety. Again, that awareness and understanding of how your brain is kind of working behind your back is really the first step. Um, Even if you don't remember, you know, if you don't remember attentional bias and interpretation bias, if you just take away that understanding, your brain is kind of doing these things behind your back that really are filtering how you see your world, how you interpret, um, you know, talks with people, your relationships, all those sort of things. And so that creates that heightened anxiety. Um, So knowing this now, and if you have anxious symptoms or if you are a highly stressed individual, uh, you know you can start to watch for your brain when it is doing this. You can kind of start to step out. I've talked about this before in, in past episodes, but step out of your brain and become the observer of your brain, right? So So you have all these thoughts, but instead of making judgments and interpreting your world, you kind of step out and you're like, oh, my brain is thinking this. Interesting. This really is the first step to starting to heal anxiety, to manage stress. It really is becoming aware and practicing that awareness of when your brain might be bringing you along for a ride in this belief system Uh, that is actually increasing your anxiety. So understanding cognitive bias, how our brain works behind our back, 
how that creates our interpretation of what's going on in our world and that being aware of those things and starting to practice recognizing when it's happening can be really powerful in that first step of stepping out of anxiety and and high stress. And again, stepping kind of, you know, I like to think of it as stepping out of your brain for a moment and just observing what your brain is doing, not judging it. You know, it's just like, oh, you know, I just noticed like my brain is interpreting that this conversation, you know, this person really doesn't like me. Um, and that's interesting, right? And, and so you get interested and curious about what your brain is doing. And that really helps to give you some space. And that alone starts to decrease the temperature of anxiety, the temperature of stress. Okay, so practical things here. For this week, practice that awareness of your thinking. This is often called metacognition, right? Thinking about your thinking. Take time this week to think about your thinking every day. Journaling on this is even more efficient um, at this sort of work that you're doing to manage anxiety, to heal from anxiety, to manage stress. So if you become aware of either attentional, interpretational bias, write your thought down and label it as attentional bias or interpretation bias. Show your brain you know that what this thinking is, right? This, this gives a sense of clarity. Labeling, naming gives a sense of clarity and control, both of which automatically reduce anxious feelings a bit. Um, one example, I know examples are helpful here. So one example coming to mind um, and that I hear a lot, and this was me personally, I used to do this all the time, um, you know, I'm in a conversation with someone, maybe someone I just meet, or it could have been, you know, my significant other or something. Oh, I actually have a really good one I'm going to do here. This was with my significant other. And um, we first started dating and, you know, I would cook for him once in a while. And, um, you know, I did a few meals and each time we'd sit down to eat, you know, I'd glance over and in my brain, he was like turning up his nose at the food he was about to eat that I had prepared. This is true story. This is how our brains get into these habits, you guys. I mean, I'm old. My brain's been doing this for a long time. So anyway, so that happened probably two times. And then, you know, I was like, okay, I, he hates my food. He hates my cooking. Um, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna cook for him anymore. Um, so then, you know, it was sort of like, if he would come over to eat, you know, I'd say, well, maybe you want to bring what you like to eat. You know, I never talked to him about it, by the way. This, you guys, I let this go on for, I'm not kidding, like over a year. And then finally one time it came up and I said, well, I don't like cooking for you because I know I'm not a good cook. I, I know you don't like what I make. And he was like, what are you talking about? He goes, I've loved everything you've ever made for me. Um, and he wasn't kidding. I could tell he was sincere. And that blew my mind. It was sort of like, Heather, you took these two, I interpreted this look on his face twice, um, had nothing to do with my food. Who knows why he made, he, it might not have even been a turned up nose look. I interpreted it that way because I'm in this habit pattern of thought where everyone's critical of me, you know, nobody likes me, you know, all that, that goes into way deeper stuff, you know, but my point being, um, 
it really, you know, can affect a relationship and, and how we lived for the next year. Me thinking he hated my cooking when really, he really actually truly enjoyed it, you know? So anyway, as soon as I became aware of that, um, and labeled it like, oh, Heather, you know, that was totally an interpretation bias. That alone helped me get out of that even more often, right? It, it gave me, just labeling it, gave me a sense of clarity and control, um, both of which took away those anxious feelings. So, okay, anyway. Then um, another thing you could do, practical level, write to yourself. Say, write down in your journal, that is my brain thinking in a habit pattern of thought that is not necessarily true. And I am working to figure out how to create a new habit of thought that will reduce my anxious symptoms. So give yourself reassurance, validate yourself, let yourself know you are moving in a healing direction. In the following weeks, I am going to get into how to start to shift the habit patterns of these cognitive distortions, of these um, patterns of thoughts and um, these habits of thoughts uh, to ones that are more useful for us, more helpful for us, um, to ones that create more feelings of calm and peace, as well as how to use our breath and bodies to move out of anxiety or stress when we can't get to our logical brain to do our thought work, because that happens often too. Both aspects of us, our psychological systems in the body and our thoughts or brain have to get retrained to help heal the anxiety. There was a quote I posted, um, I suppose it was on Instagram a while back that says, anxiety is persistent and inaccurate. If we remember this, we take the power back. Anxiety is persistent. Uh, this, this is that habit patterned way the brain is thinking. It keeps the anxious or worry thought coming back, coming back, coming back. It's persistent. It is also inaccurate. And now you understand why it's inaccurate due to our brain's built-in cognitive bias that is meant to help, but can really go offline and create lots of anxiety for us. So just remembering what I am thinking when I'm experiencing anxiety is most likely inaccurate. Just remembering and saying this to yourself can help ease up some of those anxious symptoms. Remember this to take your power back. One final word, anxiety, depression, many mental and emotional disorders exist on a continuum. They can be clinical in nature. This means that, that symptoms meet the criteria in the DSM-5. For an actual clinical diagnosis, but symptoms do not have to fall into the clinical range to be absolutely miserable and affect our lives. Many people really suffer greatly with anxious symptoms, feeling overly stressed that don't meet criteria for clinical diagnoses. In either case, if you are suffering and have been unable to use tactics or strategies on your own to feel better, please go see your doc or a mental health professional who can help partner with you to heal. It is so, so worth it. Okay, you guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. I really do appreciate you sharing this space with me. If, if you feel like this was helpful or useful, please pass it along to someone else who might find it helpful or useful. Please share it on social media, um, anything just to get it out there to help other people dealing with anxiety. 
And stay tuned the next couple weeks as I continue to dive even deeper into anxiety and stress management and uh, how learning to heal from it can really help us take our lives back. Did you know you can find a lot more help from me on my website? Go to heatherheinen.com. Heinen is spelled H-E-Y-N-E-N. And get in touch with questions on all things I offer, like online courses for overeating, weight loss, goal attainment, and also my coaching and counseling services. Thank you.